Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, as we begin, I want to pray specifically for the women. The families, yes. The husbands, yes. The children, yes. But the women who are within earshot of this message, who have gathered here today, some are broken, some are not. Some are struggling, some are doing well. But we pray, Father, that you would strengthen their hand to be everything that you have for them to be in this life. We pray, Lord, that you would give them strength to hear this message. We've been dealing with so many topics during this series and many more to come. As we narrow our focus down today a bit more, I pray for great grace. And we are so thankful for the women who have given their lives to love a family, to love their children. In Jesus' name, amen. I will say that I'm a bit reserved in giving a message like this today on being a homemaker for obvious reasons. Um, But I will say that I had a great mom who was a good example. And she was a registered nurse, but she spent our formative years uh, raising the children, being all about the home. And then later on, when we were in school and could get about a little bit by ourselves, she took a part-time job to make a little extra income just for her family. And then I had a wife who was totally devoted to me and to our son. So I have some pretty good role models as well as the Word of God uh, to stand on this morning. There was a man who was 80 years of age and he went to his doctor for a checkup. Doctor was amazed at how good of health this 80-year-old man was in. And so the doctor in the middle of the examination said, tell me your secret. You, You have the body of a 60-year-old, and you're 80 years old. What's your secret? The old man said, well, Doc, when I was young, first married to my wife, we made an agreement that if she was about to lose her temper, that she would go to the kitchen and I would just hang out on the back porch until that episode was over. And if it looked like I was going to lose my temper, that I would immediately retreat to the back porch, and she knew that was her signal to just stay in the kitchen. So the doctor said, okay, I don't get it. What does that have to do with how physically fit you are? And the old man said, well, doc, you might say I've lived an outdoor life. (laughs) The secret to a good marriage isn't going outside to the back porch, but going all in, in working through the minutiae, the details, the roles, and the responsibilities of a relationship. It's getting your heart in the home. You know the old saying, home is where your heart is. That's a saying that simply means that because of our memories and affections, we have longings toward the home, if you had a good home growing up, or the idea to replicate that home life that brought you such a sense of security. But that's not always the case. There are forces in our world that are out to actually destroy the home. 
and your longing toward it. We want to talk about some of that today. Where is your heart as a husband? Where is your heart as a wife? Because if your heart is in the home, it doesn't matter what you have. It matters whom you have. It's all about the relationships, not about the stuff. Benjamin Franklin had a cute little saying. He said, a little house, well filled, a little garden, well tilled, and a little wife, well willed, are great riches. Great riches indeed. Today I talk to you about the role of a homemaker. What Proverbs 31 calls an excellent wife. What the New King James calls a virtuous wife. The NIV puts it, a wife of noble character. You heard what was in the video just a moment ago, the proverb that was quoted, Proverbs 14. A wise woman builds her home. A foolish woman tears it down with her own hands. What I want to look at with you today from Titus and from Proverbs 31 are three things about the home and the homemaker. The opposition, the instruction, and the illustration. There has been and is forces of opposition against the whole idea of the home and being a homemaker. It's not seen as a glorious occupation anymore. Number two, the New Testament instruction. What does the Bible have to actually say about that? And number three, is there an illustration we can look at that sort of sums it all up? That will occupy our time together. Now in Titus, let me just give you the background. Titus was a young Gentile, non-Jewish convert, presumably who came to Christ because of Paul the Apostle and his influence. And he became a worker with Paul. Paul sends him to get in order the churches on an island called Crete. Some of us were at the island of Crete a few months ago. And it was great to read the epistle to Titus on that island. Paul then sends a letter to Titus living on Crete and gives him sort of the social, spiritual order of the Christian family and Christian leaders. So he talks about the roles and responsibility of spiritual leadership, then the roles and responsibilities of older men, older women, younger men, younger women. The family, which was totally unknown in that pagan culture. And so we turn to Titus, chapter 2, Beginning in verse 1, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men may be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they, the older women, admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. I want to begin with the idea of opposition, because Paul was writing these words in a very pagan culture, and the new converts did not have any ideal or model to follow except these words. 
Here's what's interesting. In, in the ancient world, 2,000 years ago in Rome and in Greece, Greco-Roman culture, there were two extremes in the family. On one hand, you had male chauvinism. On the other hand, you had pagan feminism. Both were strong forces that that culture was aware of. Okay, by and large, men 2,000 years ago were autocratic. Roman men could be tyrants because there was actually a law that was written for the Roman man called the patria potestas or the absolute rule of the husband slash father in an ancient Roman family. He was in charge of the lives and the affairs completely of his family. Roman law enabled that man, if he wanted to, to sell his family off as slaves or to enact capital punishment on his wife and his own children. A wife was tantamount to a slave back then. In fact, Roman men had categories, social categories, and one of them was called embecilitas, or imbecile. Someone who was weak-minded and weak-bodied. And he placed, the Roman man placed his wife in that category. So you can see what she was up against. In the Greco-Roman culture, women were not included in the census figures when the census was taken. In fact, Roman women many times didn't even bear their own names, but rather assumed the name of her father in a feminine form. For example, if her father happened to be named Julius, like in Julius Caesar, she was simply given the name Julia. And if that family happened to have another daughter, she was named Secunda, or the second, just given a number. If they had another daughter, she was named Tertia, or the third. So women were low esteemed in that time. Now at the same time all of that was happening, that created a real angst in the hearts of many women, so that a feminist movement actually grew up in ancient Rome as a backlash to that. One of the authors named Juvenal, a Roman, wrote that women were joining men in hunting expeditions, quote, with spear in hand, breast exposed, and took to pig stickling or boar hunting. And that women saw marriage and raising children as a restriction of their rights. That they resented bearing children for fear it would spoil the looks of their bodies. They were asserting their independence, leaving their husbands, leaving their homes, they demanded jobs traditionally held by men, wore men's clothing and hairstyles, and discarded all signs of femininity. I'm bringing that up so that you know that when Paul wrote these words, he was dealing with a culture that would not accept that model of a Christian family. And it's important you understand that because a lot of people say, well, Paul wrote so long ago in a culture that was really different than our culture. Not really. Our culture today, so advanced, was very similar in many ways to the ancient culture. Now let's fast forward to today. And if you don't mind, I'd like to start with my own experience and when I was born. I'm a baby boomer. That means when I grew up, I watched shows like Leave it to Beaver, Ozzie and Harriet, My Three Sons, Gilligan's Island, and My Mother the Car. So it was a very, very different era than it is today. However, what we are today is largely because of what we were back when I was born. 
I was born in the post-war baby boom generation, living out the American dream, two cars in every garage and a washing machine in every home. That's what people live for. Husbands who had come from World War II, my dad being one of them, went back to work largely because of the GI Bill, which made jobs available for men who had come back from battle. And husbands were spending more and more time away from their families to achieve that American dream because after the 50s, during that time and afterwards, we became very enamored with more stuff, more money, more gadgets, a bent toward materialism, making husbands, fathers, my own included, spending a lot more time away from the family getting those things that the family wanted. Now, while all that was happening, there was a growing sense of feminism in the United States of America. Because after all, in the early part of our culture, women were not allowed to vote. They didn't have access to good education. They didn't have access to good occupations. The one exception being World War II, when many women went back to the factory jobs that their husband vacated because they went off to war. But as soon as the war was over and the husbands came home, did you know that the government almost virtually shut all of that down in an instant? They were suddenly laid off, having to go back to work as a homemaker while their husbands took that job again. All of those forces did something to the fabric of the American family. It strained it. And as a consequence, the divorce rate went sky high. Did you know, get this, between 1965 and 1975, the divorce rate in America doubled. In just 10 years, the divorce rate doubled. Then we had the fallout of that. Single parent homes. Single mothers working hard just to pay off the apartment payment and to buy food for the family. So look at where we are today. According to Time magazine, 68% of women with children under 18 are in the workforce. That's in contrast to 1960. It was 28%. 28% then, 68% now. According to megatrends for women, the traditional family with the husband as the breadwinner The homemaker wife and children now accounts for only 10% of American families. Back in the 1960s, a radical feminist by the name of Kate Millett, you may recognize her name, wrote a book called Sexual Politics, in which she wrote, and I quote, The family unit must go. The family unit must go. Why? She says, because it is the family that has oppressed and enslaved women, close quote. So what was happening in Paul's day and what is happening in our day, though 2,000 years removed, really dynamically, culturally, isn't all that different. What that means to us is we as Christians have a great opportunity to let the ideal of the family as written in the Bible shine. We can put this family to work in our own lives and shine that example in our culture. So that's the opposition. Let's go to the instruction. And I draw your attention more closely, beginning in verse 3. He says, The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, holy, 
not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Notice he speaks to mature women, mothers, grandmothers, that they become the ones that mentor, model, teach godliness. Not unforgiveness, not avarice, not lewdness, godliness. And first on the list that older women are to say to the younger women is, Hey, hey, love your husbands and your children. Love your husbands and your children. I noticed something that I never noticed before looking at the text. Paul places loving the husband first, I think, as a gentle reminder of priorities. Because here's what happens so often when young women become mothers, suddenly they have children now, they forget they're also a wife. And they should love their children, certainly. They're going to be all about that. But don't forget that your first relationship before you had children was the husband. Love your husbands. Love your children. I remember Josh McDowell said to young women, the best gift you can ever give to your children is to love their father. The best gift you can ever give to your children is to love their father. Now, he uses the word love. Now, you've heard me toss Greek around enough to know probably what you think that word is in Greek. When it says love, what word do you think it is? Agape. See, I tricked you. It's really not agape. And I did that on purpose. Because the word that Paul uses for love your husband isn't that word that he says God loves us with or we're to love brothers and sisters with, but it's the word phileo, which is a word that involves the emotional dimension, a friendship love, the delight in being together. The love of a wife can cause a husband to blossom. The bitterness of a wife can cause a husband to wither. Howard Hendricks said, if your Christianity doesn't work at home, it doesn't work. Don't export it. It all begins in the crucible of the home. Older women, the message you have for younger women is they are to love, delight to be together with, have emotional dimension and friendship with their husbands first and their children second. And then, verse 5, to be discreet. Simply means to be wise, wise up, use common sense. The word chaste, the next word means holy, pure, be pure in thought, pure in action. In other words, he's describing a woman who's in control of her role. She's in control of her role. One of the biggest problems I've discovered in marriages is something called role reminding. You know what I'm talking about? Role reminding. Let me remind you of your role. That's role reminding. Instead of me owning my role, let me tell you about your role. Yeah, I know it says that I should do this, but it says you should do that. I want to remind you of that. That's role reminding. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to do this, but you're supposed to do that. Isn't it interesting that we have memorized the other person's role? Sometimes neglecting our role. Now, we've talked about husbands, and believe me, we'll talk more about them, especially next time. 
But notice what it says here. Discreet, chaste, homemakers. I'm going to leave that for just a moment. Good, obedient or submissive. We discussed that to their own husbands that the word of God may not be blasphemed. People are looking at you and watching how you relate to each other. And for many unbelievers, the only insight they get into what it's like to be a Christian is watching your marriage relationship. You know, when I first uh, moved to Albuquerque, I, I sort of thought that the state flower was the orange cone, the traffic cone. <laughs> you laugh because you know exactly where I'm coming from. I saw it everywhere. I thought, boy, they really like those orange things here a lot. And um, this um, summer, I've noticed that there's a lot of road work and there's some freeways where you have four lanes and then they narrow into three lanes and then into two lanes into one lane. You know what I'm talking about? You know how frustrating that is? And here's the problem I discover is that other drivers think their car should be in front of my car <laughs> as it narrows down. And so we're both going toward the narrow, the one lane. And one of us is going to have to get back in line behind the other one so we don't crash. Now, that's how a marriage relationship is. Yes, the husband should prefer his wife. Yes, the wife should prefer her husband. But at some point, so you don't crash, somebody has to get behind the other one. And the role of the husband in a marriage is a leadership role, a headship role. The role of a wife in a marriage is a submissive role. That doesn't mean your husband is always right. You're thinking, boy, don't I know that. I know that to be true. But it means he's always responsible. And you're going to come to an impasse where the cars are coming together, cars are coming together, there's going to be a crash, and you're going to have to say, I'm going to get behind him. I'm going to support him. I'm going to love him. I think he's making the wrong call on this, but that's his responsibility, not mine. And you might think, well, I'm kind of into the dual headship thing. There can be two heads. There can be two heads. That's called a monster. A monster has two heads. If you don't want your marriage looking like a horror film, forget the dual headship thing. God the Father is the head of Christ who submits to the Father. The husband submits to Christ. The wife submits to the husband. That's the order. And that will make things flow smoothly. Discreet. Chaste. Look at the next word. Homemakers. Now please don't read something into that that's not there. Don't go, oh boy, here it comes. Barefoot and pregnant my whole life, stay at home. It does not mean that the home is to be your 24-7 dwelling, that you're there all the time. It doesn't mean that the home is to be your prison. It simply means, ladies, the home is to be your priority. Your priority. The word homemaker is oikurgos in the Greek, from two words, oikos, which means house, Ergon, which means work. It simply means one who's devoted to that. One who's devoted to that. It doesn't speak of labor in general, but a job in particular or the focus of an occupation. In other words, it is God's design that the focus of the wife's life be on the home. She pours her life into that family. And some women pour so much, so much, so much into a family. And they're not seeing a lot of returns right now. And it's very, very difficult. Let me tell you a story. And it's a true story. There was a husband. He was not a godly man. Married to a godly Christian woman. 
This guy was out at a bar one night with his buddies, slamming him down, slamming him down. And he made a wager with his buddies. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll bet you that we could go home right now at any time, but let's do it tonight. Wake my wife out of bed and she'll cook a meal for us and she won't complain once. They said, dude, you're on. They shook. They made a bet. I don't know how much. Well, he staggered into his house about 2 a.m., 2, 2.30 in the morning, woke his wife out of bed. She came out in her bathrobe with a smile, cooked a meal for her buddies, and they were just flabbergasted. They said, you know, we got to tell you something, quite honestly. We made your husband a bet tonight. He said that this would happen. We said no way it would happen. And then one of them said, who had a little more clear thinking, didn't drink as much that night, said, how do you put up with that guy? Actually, how could you put up with any of us guys, he should have said. How do you put up with that guy? You're so gentle. You're so kind. You you did this without complaining. Here was her answer. She said, I am a Christian woman. I know that my stay here on this earth won't be long, that I have the joys of heaven awaiting me forever. My husband is not a Christian. His future is so black and dismal in hell. I thought that I would make him as happy as I could while he's still here. You know that after a while, after a few months, out of conviction for hearing that and watching his wife's consistent love and support, that man became a believer. I think that's the idea behind First Peter, that they, without a word, may be won by the behavior of their wives. That's the instruction. It's basic. Just women, older women, teach and mentor younger women to love husbands, to love wife, to be discreet, wise, pure homemakers, to devote themselves to the priority of building up the home life. Now turn with me to Proverbs 31. We'll bring this to its highlight and conclusion in Proverbs 31, the Old Testament illustration. Now, this describes being a homemaker in Old Testament times. And before any of you think, oh, great, more words to women from men about how to do it right. If you're thinking that, you got it wrong. I want to draw your attention to Proverbs 31, verse 1. Notice it says, the words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him. These aren't men's words here. It's a guy writing everything his mom taught him. These are words from a woman through a man on the pages of Scripture. Why are they included in the book of Proverbs? For two reasons. To show a woman what she's to be like and to show a man what he's to look for. And so he writes this. Verse 10. Who can find a virtuous wife or a wife of noble character or an excellent wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Verse 10 is the million-dollar question, isn't it? Or should we say the million-shekel question? Who can find a virtuous wife? In other words, what is it that you value to say that woman is so worthy, I want her as my wife. Who can find a virtuous wife? How do you measure the worth of a woman? What traits, what qualities give her value? Some men would say her appearance. 
Okay, that might be the first hook, but what else? Well, the way she dresses and carries herself, her fashion, her sense of fashion. Okay, you better keep going, because if that's it, you're in trouble. I've discovered that some men aren't looking for the virtuous woman, they're looking for the virtual woman. One that really doesn't exist, except in their mind. Not virtuous, virtual. You know, some guys have a list of what they're looking for. And have you noticed how, like, unreal it is? You know, I, I like somebody who is like a professional model. Maybe if she's on the cover of Vogue magazine, that'd be cool. An Olympic athlete, you know, faster than a speeding bullet. Um, the IQ of an Albert Einstein. Um, high degree of education. Really? First of all, if you ever find that woman, dude, why on earth would she want to hang out with you? What do you got going on? So here's what you notice, and I want you to notice it. When the Bible talks about these women, the emphasis isn't on the outward appearance, though God invented it. He invented beauty, but the emphasis is always on the inward. He's not down on the outward. It's just that the inward is more important. And you know why the emphasis is on the inward? Look with me at verse 30. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is what? Passing. Beauty is passing. It's called gravity. Am I right? It happens to all of us. Beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. In verse 12, it says, She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. In other words, here is a gal who has his, her husband's, best interests at heart. She wants to encourage him and strengthen him. She doesn't want to defame him in public or in the privacy of the family. She keeps her vows for better, for worse. Kind of forget that at the wedding. Richer or poorer. Sickness and in health till death do us part. His success is her joy. Now buckle your seatbelts. Verse 13. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it. And from her profit, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, the implement for sewing, And her hand holds the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of the snow for her household, for all of her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates while he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Boy, can I just tell you, it's exhausting to just read that. Let alone how on earth women could you ever do that? Well, let me say, first of all, you can't do that in a day. He's not giving the 24-hour description of the virtuous wife. He's giving a lifetime 
sewn into a character of a woman. This is a a woman over time. Now, granted, back in those days, women did have to grind their own meal and sew their own clothes and work in the fields with their husband as well as tend the children. It was much more difficult. But the idea here is not talking about do all this, otherwise you're not a virtuous wife. He's simply saying, here's a woman who over the long haul did all of these things. Like in verse 13, the kids are younger. She's busy cooking, weaving, making clothes in that culture. Then as the kids grow up, she starts a small business out of her home. That's alluded to in a few places, including verse 24. Later on, she takes savings from that business and invests in the real estate market, verse 16. So once again, being devoted to the home is her occupation, her focus, her priority. doesn't mean she's a prisoner. It's her priority. It's a great story about the evangelist named Gypsy Smith. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of him. But back in the 1800s, early 1900s in England, a sort of extravagant evangelist, Gypsy Smith, would travel around and do crusades. At one crusade, of the people that came forward was a woman, a mother. And she was radically converted. And she wrote a letter to the evangelist saying, Mr. Smith, I feel called to the ministry, to be a preacher, to be a teacher. I feel like I have a gift. The only problem, I have 12, 12 children. I sense this call of God on my life, but I have 12 children. What do I do? He tenderly, graciously wrote this letter back. My dear lady, I am happy to hear that you have been saved and feel called to preach, but I'm even more delighted to know that God has already provided you with a congregation of 12. That's a wise response because you see the barometer of what a woman can do besides the home will depend upon ages of the children, needs of the children, needs within that home. All of that will dictate determining if she can take on tasks other like the Proverbs 31 woman who did take on other tasks at different stages of family life. But let's sum it up. It's summed up in verse 27. She watches over the ways of her household, that is, she's in constant surveillance of her family's needs. And she does not eat the bread of idleness. She realizes that true fulfillment will come from the supreme effort of giving all that she can to the home. And you're thinking, I I see two words, Skip. Hard work. But please look at verse 28. Here's the payoff. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all, he would say. Charm is deceitful, beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. We have a saying. What goes around comes around. Women, verse 28 is the return on your investment. If you invest your life in your home, in your husband, in your children, or put it this way, if you will spend the first half of your life investing in your children, the second half of your life, you will see the return on the investment. They will rise up and call you the blessed one who gave your life for them all of those years. They may not appreciate it right now, but they will. 
Moreover, you may have a husband who will also rise up and say, you're one of a kind. You're one of a kind. Because you will have a man who's respected and esteemed because of what you've made him. I think that's the idea behind verse 23. Her husband is known in the gates, place of respect, honor, when he sits among the elders of the land. In other words, this woman created a world for her husband so that he can be everything God wanted him to be. And that's the return on the investment. I want to close with a letter. It's not a biblical letter. It's a fictional letter, fictitious letter, but it's based upon the biblical text that we have looked at. Very short. If God were to write a letter to women, it might read this way. When I created the heavens and the earth, I spoke them into being. When I created man, I formed him and breathed life into his nostrils. But you, woman, I fashioned after I breathed the breath of life into man because your nostrils are too delicate. I allowed a deep sleep to come over him so I could patiently and perfectly fashion you. Man was put to sleep so that he could not interfere with the creativity. I like that. From one bone I fashioned you, the bone that protects man's life. I chose the rib, which protects his heart and lungs and supports him as you are meant to do. Around this one bone I shaped you, I modeled you. I created you perfectly and beautifully. Your characteristics are as the rib, strong, yet delicate and fragile. You provide protection for the most delicate organ in the man, the heart. The heart is the center of his being. His lungs hold the breath of life. The rib cage will allow itself to be broken before it will allow damage to the heart. Support the man as the ribcage supports the body. You were not taken from his feet to be under him. You were not taken from his head to be above him. You were taken from his side to stand beside him and to be close to his side. As you protect the heart of your children and your husband, they'll one day rise up and call you blessed. And it says in the end, give her the fruit of her hands Can I just say I want to give you the fruit of my hands, women, for all that you've done for us. And Father, we pray for these dear ladies. For many of them, it's been tough. Many of them have been forced themselves out of a relationship, forced to provide for children and themselves, and it's very difficult to balance their life. Give them great grace and give them people who can help them out and help raise their children and mentor their children. Strong men and women as examples, as mentors in this fellowship to do exactly that. We pray, Lord, for those men and women who are married and have children and they're all together in one home. We pray, Lord, that that home would be a reflection of the love Jesus has for a very imperfect church. That as an imperfect man and an imperfect woman, the union of two forgivers, as they work out the issues of their life, pour the salve of your grace in it. 
that the word of God may not be blasphemed. That the glory and honor of Jesus Christ can be seen through our humble love and forgiveness of one another. Lord, we pray that you'd help us avoid collisions and creating monsters out of relationships. Again, we ask for your grace to do that. And we believe that week by week, you're perfecting us and molding us and shaping us. Do that through this series. And for men and women, Lord, who don't yet have a personal relationship with you yet, I pray they would come to know you personally. Lord, you formed us. You fashioned us. You want to fulfill us. First, you must redeem us. And so I pray, Lord, that that some today would say yes to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.